Hello! Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 22 of the Ozymandias Project's Ancient Office Hours. In today's episode, I had the chance to speak with Dr. Stephen Sansom, a postdoctoral associate in classics at Cornell University. He specializes in early Greek poetry and its reception, especially the poetics of style, meter, and intertext, using approaches from corpus linguistics, anthropology, and computational literary studies. We got to discuss how post-baccalaureates can be helpful to getting into grad school, how studying poetry can make you cool, and whether we should continue to call the discipline classics, or would we benefit from a name change. Some really great thoughts were exchanged in this one, so enjoy the episode, and I'll see you all soon. I want to first start off by thanking you for joining me this morning. It's, it's, it's always so nice to have people on and, and agree to come on, especially in the, in the morning, since that's always a challenge for, for me included. <laughs> so I just want to start us off, get us rolling by asking, you know, a little bit about you. You know, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how on earth did you get into classics? Sure. So uh, my name's Stephen, and I'm a postdoctoral associate or postdoc at Cornell University. I've been here going on three years now, and it's been a real pleasure. I finished up my PhD in 2018. I study Greek and Latin poetry, mainly Greek poetry, usually Homer, Hesiod, early hexameter poetry. Can't get enough of it. I first got into classics through a side door. I was an English major in college and was required to take a a language other than English. And I was like, oh, well, I see they offer Latin here. So why don't I take that to support my study of the English language? Because aren't there a lot of like Latin roots in English and everything? Started taking Latin. And at the same time, like I had some friends who I played music with who were like, you should come study abroad in Greece with us. And I was really lucky to be able to do such a thing as study abroad. We'll go to college for, for first off and then also study abroad. I, I, so I did and like had these kinds of like, you know, like moving experiences on the burial mound at Thermopylae and wandering around like the Agora and Athens and these sort of like profound experiences with really good friends, really good instructors and like great reading. So like, yeah, I was like, my head and heart were very full and ended up, um, declaring a major when I came back. And when I was finishing college, I was like, well, I really love English and classics, but it seems like I might be better positioned to get a job if I also learned how to like teach Latin or something like that too, which, which I'd grown really fond of. And so, so I went the, the classics route after that. Yeah. I think that's awesome because we're, we're sneaky like that. Right. I think a lot of classics departments, they, they never mean to hook you in in terms of just, you know, take this class and this will make you want to be a classics major. They always frame it in that, oh, well, it's totally fine. Do what you're doing. Just like take a class because it'll help you be well-rounded. And then people get all enamored with the idea of Greek and Latin or some aspect of Greek or Roman architecture, culture, something. And then they just go, oh, no, you know what? I'm going to stay here. I like this. I feel like that's (laughs) 
that's what they did to to me so, sort of that's what they did to a, a lot of my friends so it's always it's it's so wholesome to hear yet another story of someone who was like no 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 i i think i have a i have an idea of where i'm going to go what i'm going to do nope never mind i'm going to just turn right around and and do this cool thing instead even though i have no idea where it's going to lead me or am i going to get a job <laughs> right yeah that's how it kind of was i was in the uh, uh, the fortunate position where I could take as many credits as I want to because my dad is a college professor and I went to the college where he taught so I didn't have to worry about you know I just got the credits for free I was a student of a faculty so I could just like take take classes and so I just instead of having to switch majors I just added the major and took a, you know a victory lap fifth year and did as much Latin and Greek as I could and yeah totally it was one of those things I didn't have to decide until it was like now I'm graduating and actually I got this really weird call my senior year where uh, a local high school was looking for a Latin teacher and they called the chair of the department and was like, hey, do you have anyone who can teach Latin? And I hadn't really thought about it that hard before then. And, and he was like, yeah, well, try this guy. So I went and you know, interviewed, sat down and they said, your hair is too long. You're going to have to cut that. You know that, right? And I said, yeah, I can, I can, I can probably work with that. <laughs> it was a lot longer than it is right now. <laughs> but yeah, so, so I did and I really enjoyed it for two years, but then wanted to write more papers. And so I went back to grad school. Well, that's something you don't hear every day. I wanted to write more papers. <laughs> it's true. I had some really good advice from a friend who had gone on and got his master's after undergrad and, and was teaching Latin. I was like, so what is it like to be a Latin teacher? And then we started teaching Latin, at, you know, in a similar area in Alabama, outside of Birmingham, but in different schools. And he was like, you know, if you want to go to grad, the reason I didn't want to go to a PhD program after master's program is I never wanted to write another paper my whole life. And, and I was like, okay, so this is kind of something to consider. How would I feel writing more papers? And if I'm into it, then I probably could keep on going. Wow. Yeah. I, you know, I, I made it five years of undergrad and I was like, you know, hey, it's right. been, you know, enough papers for a while, which it's funny because I do understand in, in some way that the want to, it's not for me, the specific want to like, I want to go back and write papers, but it's the, I want to learn more and I would like to contribute and best way to do that is to write a paper that will be received by like scholars in the community but hopefully other people as well so I definitely get that because I'm trying to go back to grad school myself so you know you're kind of terrified of the oh no that's more paper writing but that that drive to to contribute in some meaningful way is yes. is very strong so I do understand that so how did you go about choosing grad school programs like how did you decide to focus on poetry? Because I mean, there's so many different facets of classics that people, that grabs different people. You know, I have I've really good friends who love the art history aspect. So they were kind of like, yeah, I'm going to go do a PhD in Greek temple architecture. So, you know, what was it about poetry? Well, for me, I'd always loved reading. I was into poetry in high school, like literary magazine kind of stuff and just, you know, loving nerding out. Like, I, I guess my high school probably had an AV club, but I was in like the lit mag version of an AV club. And so it was always on my radar. And then in college, doing English lit, a lot of that was just poetry too. So I got really used to reading it and, and loving it. And so, I mean, where, when it came to graduate schools, my undergrad had a classics department that was pretty young in terms, I think it started in 2000 or something like that. So it wasn't a long old department, but it's a, it was a really fantastic one with great faculty. But I needed, when I finished up, I think I'd had two years of Greek and maybe two year and a half years of Latin. And 
some French, like some, you know, French, but no German. And so I knew that I needed more schooling in order to get to like a really competitive PhD program. So I took like basically the longest route you can possibly take. So like taught Latin after college for a couple of years, went to a post-bac program. I don't know if you're you're familiar with these programs. So I went to UNC and loved it every second of it and took a bunch of Greek while I was there. And then post-bac programs are expensive because they're usually not funded, they're self-funded. And so I spent all of the money I'd saved from teaching Latin and, and then some uh, to pay for those credits and, and, and get a lot of a good experience and work with some great faculty there. Um, then I went to a master's program for two years that was thankfully funded for, through TA ships and fellowships. And from there, I was like, OK, now I'm as I am as best positioned as I am ever going to be to apply to competitive PhD programs. And so I applied to like 13 or something, got into a few and then thankfully got into my favorite one top pick because of. The kind of work they do and after visiting it I, I saw like it the people there were good people that I would like to spend six years with and so like students very much included in that like the grad students um, and their sort of morale was really important consideration for me and so yeah after visiting I was like yeah this is it and I guess p- picking poetry is a thing to do I guess by the time you go into a PhD program you kind of have narrowed a little bit classics is a big umbrella so you never have to narrow too much but you kind of like apply to work with a few one or two three professors you kind of know that you would want to do something like what they do for your dissertation. And I knew that. And I had like basically written a master's thesis that incorporated one of these scholars research heavily. And I was just like, this would be someone I would like to work with intellectually for sure. And then meeting the person, I was like, yeah, fantastic. Let's do this. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I mean, that's a really circuitous route. And it feels like I think I, I spoke to a current PhD student right now who also kind of took a, a similar route, had to do a, a post back. And, you know, one of the things that we really like to talk about is, you know, how do we make it easier to get to where you are now? How do we make it easier for people to generally join the field and encourage them to want to stay and go on? And so now as the second person, I believe, who I've talked to who's had to do a post back, which is incredibly expensive, and it isn't funded, unfortunately, the way some of these other programs are, you know, did you feel that, obviously, I'm not going to ask you whether it was worth it, because obviously, you're sitting where you are now, because that's the wrong kind of question. But it's more of like a, if you didn't do it, do you believe that there would have been a way for you to end up where you are now? Or was it like, you felt it was critical to getting to where you are now? Well, coming from the undergraduate kind of small liberal arts background, I don't, I think it was critical. It was the next step I would have needed to take in order to get into the master's program that I got into or in, in I mean, I, I, I'm, you know, maybe with a little bit more work, independent work, I could have gotten into a master's program without doing that, but it made it, it made my application like more convincing and it was only one year. And it was ended up being like a fantastic year in so many other ways. Cause I mean, moving to a town to go to school is of course, like you're going there to, to get better at something and to learn something and make more contacts in that profession or field. But um, for me, it's also like, I had never really moved before. So I was kind of like leaving my hometown where I'd grown up and gone to college and like going out into the world. And so that postback was kind of like also that kind of life stage transition to uh, leaving my hometown, my home state and seeing a new place and a lot of really good music and a lot of really good food and a lot of cool stuff like that. Like I had my first yeah. taco truck during my postback, uh, my postback. I never even like knew a taco truck was a thing where you could just like walk down the road behind some like random gas station and there's like this insanely good food for like a buck 50 or something like that. It was, it was, it was amazing. So yeah, 
it was good and worth it and necessary in many ways, I think. Just in your opinion, from your experience, you know, I, I suppose in my life, the people I've met who have done postbacks, they obviously never regretted it. They said it was great, but you know, it's expensive. It is an investment and a commitment that not everyone is able to make, you know, just from your experience, is it something that encouraged students to do it? Or do you think we should start making it easier to get into grad schools where like, if you wanted to do a postback, you could, but it's not a requirement to get into a good program. If you just don't have the means or for whatever reason, you just like, that's not an option, you know? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that, that is sort of bringing up a bigger question in, in the field in graduate education in the field. Like most reasons why, like the reason why I went to a uh, postback was to get better at the languages and literature and to write a paper that I could use as a writing sample, like a really good one. And I was able to accomplish that even like with the way that, I mean, that not all postbacks are the same some of them cost more than others so some of them there is like actually like a price difference in some of these so if that is like a concern like it was for me you know definitely a consideration i think that when it comes to like language in like proficiency as a barrier to entry in a graduate program i mean i've never sat on a committee to like review grad applications and had to actually make those hard decisions but i imagine that like now thankfully it's more than just how many years of greek and latin have you had and you get into this program or not like that's that those that has changed i think in the past few years and you can see some phd programs even now that are more interested in what else you might be bringing to the table besides language proficiency with the idea that once you get here, if you're doing language and literature, you will get that kind of like base level proficiency through whatever classes, but they're going to be the ones who invest that time and effort and money to getting you up to that level because you have shown through other like efforts that you would do that and you would make, you know, you would um, achieve whatever that proficiency is, but you also are bringing really uh, other things to the table that are important and recognized to be important, whatever that might be. So yeah, that's definitely changing. And I don't know if postbacks will change with it because honestly, it seems like their bread and butter is, is language proficiency. You've got to get your Greek and Latin down before you can get into a good program, like more years under your belt, more like <laughs> yeah, works with Plato having had read, you know, have you read Petronius yet? I mean, you, might, you don't have to, but I mean, if you have, it's, it's, it's kind of nice when you can say that uh, applying to a grad program. But maybe it's not it's not the be all end all it was maybe 10 even years ago. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it sounds right. I, I think, you know, there's a lot of changing opinions because I know people I know I had I had really good professors who when I was about to graduate definitely were urging me, hey, we think you should do a post back. And one professor particularly was was urging me to do the one at UCLA. And he was like, this is a fantastic yeah. program. It'll get you right where you need to be, you know, based on what you're describing. And I just said, I don't have an extra hundred thousand lying around to do a two year <laughs> post back. I'm sorry. Yeah. And on top of that, California is expensive. Like, would I love to go? Yeah, I just don't have the means. Thank you, though. Yeah. And, you know, and he understood and he was kind of like, no, I get it. It's it's really, you know, I, I encourage you, you know, if you want to go on, this is what I would do. But if you can't like do, I would do this instead. Right. Um, and so, you know, it was it was valuable to have that conversation. But then, you know, I had other professors who were definitely like of the opinion that, you know, things are changing. So, I didn't have the most language experience and they were like, yeah, would you be hampered going into, you know, a, a master's program? Yes. Um, but, you know, there, I think there's the recognition that, you know, if you want it 
bad enough, quote unquote. Um, you know, you're willing to work hard and just take up the work when it comes. So I had a professor say, I have no doubt that if you threw yourself into Greek and Latin, the minute you got into a, a master's program, you would just take that and you would improve and you would get better every day. And so by the time I finished that two years master's program, they're like, I think you would be fine. You wouldn't have the most language experience, but then you continue on with the languages in your PhD program. And again, you're fine. So you know, just I think it depends right now on kind of who you're talking to, what school of thought they're coming from. But, you know, I personally discovered that I'm very much on the side of the professors who said, you know, I believe that if you are willing to to put in the hard work and, and want it bad enough, you can make up for the lack of language experience as you're going through a program. I don't think it should be a barrier. Just if you don't have this, no, you can't come here. To me, that's just a little harsh. But, you know, then again, what do I know? I'm the younger I'm on the younger end you know so I'm on the outside looking in well it's true I mean I, I was fortunate enough, so growing up in suburban Alabama I went to a gigantic high school uh it looks like a community college when you drive up to it and I had like almost around 700 in my class and we had Latin in my school like I could have essentially taken maybe even four years maybe even like AP Latin but I wasn't in that world at all I took Spanish like most everyone else and I enjoyed it but a lot of I guess this is probably somehow like a symptom of the field and education in Greek and Latin that like, you know, if I went to an even better school, I could have had Greek too. And I could have had it even earlier and it could have been, uh, you know, recommended to me in different ways to where I would have been taking it as, you know, a middle schooler, a uh, high schooler. And then I would have had, you know, I've been pretty good, uh, enough experience and been pretty good by the time I got to college to just advance to that level. And so if I'm sending a grad application straight from undergrad, or even then I go to a master after that, I mean, I'm just like have so much freaking Latin under my belt, it's hard to deny. But like, there's not, I mean, that's not usually the story for most public schools. Like even like my public school had Latin, but there wasn't many other in the state that did. And so, yeah, there's, there's good systematic reasons why grad admissions should be cautious, of course, about just looking at the languages. But, you know, you want people to be able to read what they're talking about. So you can see where that's important too. But to speak to your master's, talking about master's, I mean, funded master's programs are such, I mean, they're so good. It's such a good thing for education and, and classics. And I'm sure this is for, this applies to other humanities as well. Like funded master's programs give you that, I mean, step up where you can learn more and you don't have to go in debt. Someone told me a long time ago, don't ever go into debt for classics or the humanities probably I think at all and that means like graduate debt especially what they were talking about um and I was like yeah this makes a whole lot of sense because you're probably not gonna make it back the way like an MD would or whatever but like um <laughs> it also like help you in the short run to look and maybe support these more like whatever like funded MAs these sort of stepping stone kind of things or like these sort of bridge programs that are coming out like bridge like where I'm at now we've just started a bridge MA for students who haven't had a lot of Greek and Latin that come from like underrepresented minority backgrounds that like will get you a you know funded year to and whatnot into uh, another graduate program or into R. So yeah, it's like these things are popping up here and there at certain schools, and it's about time. And it's really worth supporting, and yeah, I'm glad it's happening. Yeah, that's been a change that I've been so delighted to see because I got the same advice from somebody: don't ever go in debt if they're not if they're not going to pay you. Don't do it. Just don't. <laughs> and, and it's funny because, you know, I, I think I've, I've had a discussion or I did research or something, but I, I think I saw that like 
over the lifetime of a career, I think it's proven that someone who got a humanities degree, like a history major, will make more money over the course of their career than, oh, what was it? Than like a scientist. I don't know. It was something. (laughs) And, you know, I was like, oh, that's cool. But that's totally a losing argument because who wants to be like, hey, when you're 80, you'll have made more money than your friend over here, the journalist or or something. But right. You know, people are coming out of school and they're like, uh, I've got expenses now. I can't wait till I'm 80 to dance, you know, jubilantly and say, I've I've made it. I have made more money. Ha ha ha. Than you as a, you know, journalist. Ha ha ha. But yeah, we don't we don't have time. That's a terrible losing argument. But, you know, so I, I, I look forward to having hopefully more funded programs pop up to give more young students of today and tomorrow the opportunity to, to go into some of these fields and hopefully it's it's a bit easier so they don't come up against the barriers that I've found to be there that are really annoying. Yeah, otherwise we're just going to do the same thing over and over again and maybe like shrink with everything going around or whatever it is. So yeah, it seems like to be the right way to be changing. Well, I mean, aren't we always complaining that our field is dying, quote unquote? Mm-hmm. Like, isn't that like the repeated thing every year? Our field is dying. How do we save this? And then when presented with actual ways to not have our field shrink we always turn our nose up and we go oh no we can't do that and then proceed to go another year of we're dying we're shrinking help us (laughs) it's like i don't know i found it's like this cycle of here's helpful solution no next we'll wait another year Mm. oh no we're dying even worse this year here's a solution nah (laughs) it's just (laughs) counterintuitive like why why are we so stubborn yeah uh, yeah, you know, scared of change. Yeah, well, you know, I'm like, maybe it's just a result of all of us studying like ancient political thought or something. I don't know. Maybe it's just like the stodgy sort of mindset that we have. I have no idea what it is. I just, I find the resistance and hesitance to sort of meaningful change very interesting. Because I'm like, why? There's no reason to fear this. Yeah. Those are the questions that plague, I think, most of our minds these days. But yeah, I want to I want to take a, a small step back and go back to poetry. So I have to ask, <laughs> just because it's probably stupid and ridiculous, but since you made the decision to be like, I'm going to study poetry, I love Homer, I love Hexameter, and already having that experience in English and literature and just loving poetry, did that make you very popular as like the poetry guy where people always like, hey, this dude is the poetry guy. He's going to just come and recite us some beautiful poetry. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, maybe if I had gone to more like happened in cocktail parties, I would have been <laughs> sort of seen to be that guy and I've been asked to recite or recitate. Uh, yeah, like some some ancient text. Uh, I think like so like at least in grads most everybody had to take a lot of like the same survey classes so we're all like taking like these survey classes with the same professors and like they're just reading the same texts and working on them and by the time we start like actually writing dissertation like dissertations we're kind of in our own worlds a little bit and when we're hanging out we might be workshopping chapters but that's usually with people you usually like those are with like sub-discipline folks so like literature people will be hearing, hearing my like you know chapter on Ephesus and like early Greek poetry or something like that um and be able to give me feedback on it or something like so it's like you kind of get siloed and it's almost you have to try to get outside of that world so luckily 
I was able to be involved in some like fellowship programs in which I was working alongside people from STEM backgrounds or social sciences or non-classics, non-humanities even. And for them, it was kind of like, yeah, this is, I mean, yeah, like definitely having conversations like, what's your favorite line of poetry or like, what's your, what's like a, 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 what's your favorite like line of wisdom or like saying that you like to carry around in your head or something like that. And, and, but I never felt, you know, too much like singled out as like a poetry dude. I don't know why that is, but I think it probably just has to be with like kind of the rarefied environments of these kinds of programs and, and colleges where it's like everybody's assumed to be sort of like into various things and like, oh, you're into a weird thing. Oh, like, well, I just like made this really amazing app. What do you think about that? And it's like, oh yeah, cool. We're all into weird stuff together, <laughs> which is nice. But yeah, I guess like the last time I recited poetry, I mean, like, I'm not a poet, but I'd like to be one of these days. And I was fortunate enough to, to do the Kenyan Review Poetry, like, Writer's Workshop um, a couple summers ago. And it was just, it was just a, an amazing week. Um, and, I mean, there you're asked to recite two of the poems that you wrote during that week in the workshop. So that was a cool experience. But otherwise, yeah, it's kind of like, I'm in the kind of critical seat, like, how can I, you know, understand the the, the sound patterns in these five lines of, of a 15,000 line poem or whatever, and like then extrapolate why it's important. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I that's a fun question only because one, I didn't actually have friends in college who specifically wanted to study Homer or poetry. So I, I just, I could never, I never had someone I could just sort of ask or point at and be like, hey, that's my poetry person. If I have a question, I'll just go ask them. But yeah. I do have this memory of when I studied abroad in Greece, the professor who went, when whenever we got to some ancient site that was particularly important or that was mentioned in Homer or something, he would just break out into poetry. Like he would literally just, I think we got to Delphi at one point. And then he was like, you know what? I'm going to take this great opportunity to showcase my nerdness. So he like stands up in the ancient theater of Delphi and starts reciting the first five lines of the Iliad, all in ancient Greek. And here we are, all impressionable young things. You know, what are, what are we, 19 at that point? 20, maybe? And we're just like starstruck, you know? We're like, ooh, big, tall man, with booming voice now in ancient Greek theater reciting poetry you know it was it was exciting as you know any young dude in high school who you're like super impressed with who you're you're into poetry can you recite something for me like it's so flattering so I just have this vision of like poetry people in classics being the cool people who can just be like I have this amazing talent I can just pop up right here and start reciting verse at you and sounding like a real great as I do it you know it's like the equivalent of asking that one English major to just get up and you know recite me some words worth or something <laughs> except that classicists get to do it at Delphi with like the gigantic like amazing valley behind them <laughs> all that amazing theater yeah so yeah the, the settings are far more dramatic when you're in the theater at Peter Ross and you can like just whisper the lines and someone can hear you you know seats and seats and seats away yeah so I don't know that's just a fun thing that came to mind because I'm like oh, he must be so popular just like the person who just you just star strike everyone right get up and recite I mean because it's a it's a fun skill I mean you know when I took classes of trying to learn how to recite these things in examiner I'm like you know I'm just gonna stop because I don't sound good this is going terribly and then that mind-crushing anxiety of 
I just probably sound terrible as I'm trying to say these ancient Greek words anyway, so I'm gonna just stop now. I don't know, you know, I, I have one friend, one friend to this day who just loves poetry, did not study poetry or English literature or anything. He was like an economics major, but just loves poetry. So it's this fun thing that when we're out, sometimes I'll just be like, hey, that one great poem. I was like, you stand over there on that bench and start reciting poetry. And and it turns out, you know, he he's memorized most of Dylan Thomas's work. Ooh. And so he just like mm. stand up on a bench and start reciting, do not go gentle into that good night and sound all <laughs> solemn. And I'm like, man, I've never been into poetry. I, I don't say I'm a poetry person, but I want this skill because I want to <laughs> just, like, recite a poem at somebody. So yeah. uh, this sounds a whole lot like, you know, like Greek culture or like at least started the what descriptions have given it like Greek culture and like Roman times, you know, like the second sophistic era, like when just, you know, these even like medical practitioners like Galen is like he talks about like wandering the streets and then all of a sudden when someone's like here like do surgery right now and he has to show off his learning in like some medical form or something like that you can imagine like these like dudes going around and being like okay now now uh, argue this point in like the rhetoric of Demosthenes or whatever and they just have to actually like throw down and do it you know yeah oh for sure so I don't know I'm like you know would you would you ever feel comfortable with all your great experience and knowledge now just like going to open mic night and being like what fun skill do you have oh let me stand up here and be like watch this and then just start reciting the Iliad or something <laughs> you know like the thing is about poetry my when it comes to like Greek and Latin poetry I love reading it and I love getting into it but it hits me in a different way than English poetry does do you know what I mean what I mean like I grew up speaking English it's my first language so it's kind of has like a near and dear place in my heart I can you know pick up like the Paris Review or the Canaan Review and just read a poem that's like in there by the last line you just sort of get that like you just you just feel that feeling you're like wait you're just kind of like struck a little bit you have to sort of just like reverberate for a second like on your own with what it is like I don't quite get the same kind of thing without a lot of rereading when it comes to Greek and Latin like I don't have the same kind of experience reading Greek and Latin poetry I have to like really because I'm I mean I'm, I'm still translating a lot of times so I'm like both trying to experience the rhythm the meter the sounds of it like reading out loud like you mentioned like is really something I try to do as much as possible to sort of get into my head um but then also like having to like pair it with meaning you know what I mean like like there's like the form experiencing the form and experiencing the, the meaning at the same time and when those two things converge it's kind of when I get that experience of like wonder or awe or like significance or something that's slightly beyond me with English it happens far more easily than it does with Greek or Latin. So if I were to stand up and recite something, it probably wouldn't be Greek. I mean, especially, you know, after uh, after what, what Boris Johnson did most famously with the beginning of the Iliad, this sort of spouts it off. And I think with only, only a couple of mistakes, I think some, some you know, uh, classicists have pointed out since then. But um, uh, yeah, like something about that is like, it's that you're performing a lot of things, but what you're not performing is the meaning of the Iliad. <laughs> to those people hearing that right then, you're not really talking about, like when you're talking about the Murray Akaioi, they're not, people aren't thinking, oh, that means a thousand, or like thousands upon thousands of Greeks or like a key. Like, no, they're just hearing the sound and that's a different kind of thing. So it's a different kind of movement and different kind of performance. Like, what are you performing? You're performing learning, which is super cool, especially if you're being generous with it and you actually are wanting to engage. Um, but like, yeah, I would feel very self-conscious by like, un especially unasked, like just getting up there and talking about, I mean, but if you translate it, that's something else. So like, yeah, I've been to open mics where some people will do like 
Um, and like, I mean, translation is an art, straight up art. So like, if you read some Greek and Latin, recite some Greek and Latin, do the translation too and treat it as, as art and, and try to m help people feel it when you do the translation too. So yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not like, and oftentimes, you know, people often don't like want to want to hear you do it. So it's kind of like, I don't want to impose on people, but <laughs> open mics are good for that at least because uh, that's voluntary. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's just a chance to like show people like what weird skill or cool talent do you just randomly have in your back pocket that you feel comfortable showing a bunch of people who are there um yeah. i never liked open mic nights myself so totally yeah. understand being like you know i'm not gonna just stand up and write <laughs> some epic greek poetry at them um yeah. you mentioned now so obviously greek poetry it's you're, you're looking for meaning you're looking for translation but at the same time it can be this big performance and the ancient greeks for sure perform their poetry so now the question is is there has there been any kind of like movie or TV show that has featured an ancient Greek poem or Latin poem in Greek or Latin that has been read. So I totally was watching. Oh, okay. Um, wait, yeah. Okay. So I think it was, it might've been the mayor. So it's set in LA and it's like follows around like um, an LA mayor and Ted Danson. It's like they recited greek citations of greek poetry that i know i can i've documented star trek the next generation uh, i'm not sure if you're into that show at all oh my God, there's this famous episode called darmok and it's all about this like encounter between the captain jean-luc picard and this like alien people who only speak in metaphor and it's like a mythical metaphor kind of thing. Like basically like, instead of saying like, oh, we're in danger and we need to work together. They say like, Darmok, when the walls fell, um, like, you know, and like they sort of have these like stock phrases that they will then recompose to communicate this sort of deeply embedded sort of buried meaning and immediate meaning. So like, yeah, Jean-Luc Picard and this like captain of another, sh this, other sh this other ship have to defend themselves against this kind of like interphasal kind of monster um, to basically make a treaty between their two peoples or whatever so like they have to enter into a heroic you know like achilles patroclus like um gilgamesh and Kitty, like like these kinds of like you know uh like heroic like uh, partnerships just that then and, and, and in real life they actually have to do this and then that then really like you know have like a large societal impact so at the, at the end of this episode when i was watching it through my first year of graduate school um like tng i noticed when this came up and I was, it said like you know like jean-luc like comes out of the ordeal and he's like in his in his office and his first mate comes in bill writer and he's like what are you reading and john louis says uh, john louis says um i'm reading the homeric hymns <laughs> and he's like why are you doing that and it shows the greek it, like the the camera looks at like this and i didn't know what edition it was i could never track it down it wasn't the lobe it was like greek on both sides more like an oct kind of thing um, or like a 19th century like school kids edition of it or whatever. Jean-Luc says like, well, I want to learn the mythology of my own, you know, background, my own history or whatever. And there's there's a lot to be said about that in critical ways too. But I was just so excited to hear Homeric hymns mentioned in uh, of like something I really loved watching. And I tracked down the writer and I invited him and he agreed to come and speak to my Greek myth class that I taught in the summertime. 
And he actually did. He was a classics major, an undergrad, <laughs> and then was writing for another company, uh, like or another well, same company but different show or something across the hallway from Star Trek: The Next Generation. And he always loved Star Trek. Like it's a really special show because you can actually deal with concepts, like like you can go into an episode like in this episode we're going to deal with this big concept and we're going to deal with these characters and this plot and these kinds of conceits or whatever but it just sort of invites that in ways that other shows don't necessarily invite and so what so what he just like wrote this script he wrote one other script too another fantastic episode um but he wrote this script and just walked across the hallway and gave it like as a pitch he's like here it was just like gave it to the person he knew that like you know look at scripts and the guy's like yeah this is great let's do it and it's like one of the most beloved episodes especially of course by classicists because actually talk about and it's like the deal with sort of like especially homerists you're like doing with this kind of like very like kind of homeric type performance and heroic certainly performance um but yeah like that's um that's the one that stands out to me and then of course there's lots of other examples but when you actually see greek on a page i challenge whoever out there to like find where else do you see like actual like almost like an oct page on the screen i don't know yeah, no, I always get so excited when I see legitimate Greek and Latin things. But I don't know. I, I was just kind of thinking, how many adaptations of like the Iliad and the Odyssey do we have out there? And I'm dying. I'm like, just once, can somebody start this movie or TV show with someone reciting the first few lines? Like, at least start with the, you know rage sing me muse of the man you know something just do that in like ancient greek and then go into the english you you know just i'm I'm always begging people like please put you know fun little easter eggs for classics majors you're using classic material you know for goodness sakes i'm like just give us something because then you know otherwise i just feel like we perpetually get things like the brad pitt troy right you know, there's some defenders I saw on Twitter, Classics Twitter the other day, who was like, you know, like, come at me. Brad Pitt is the best uh, Achilles uh, who's ever played him. And, and I was just like, I was loving it. It's a hot take. I really, you know, <laughs> Classics Twitter is full of hot takes. And this was like, one of, this was like, uh, this was a real fun one. It made me want to kind of actually rewatch it. Cause I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I like that Brad Pitt um, ever since. Was it, was it in the 12 Monkeys or something like that uh, back in the day? Um, Gary Gilliam uh yeah like that yeah and and I but you know Troy was kind of hard to watch but um I I, I kind of want to see rewatch his performance maybe he does nail it he, yeah yeah but I don't otherwise like you know, when <laughs> thinking about them reciting ancient Greek at the beginning of an adaptation of the Iliad of Odyssey reminds me I mean it kind of has a, like a little bit of like um a hobbit-ish like old kind of like maybe like a 60s or 70s cartoon adaptation of something that starts with like you know like the opening of a book and like you have a narrator like a sort of kindly old narrator like but you know like the gravitas and his voice is like like and then like can sort of that that's how you can certainly pull it off at least that kind of like you know however many seconds of a, of a, a language that no one's pretty much gonna know when you read it and even classes major gonna be like okay could you like get more slowly please you know like and just like hear it again um i bet that's how you could pull it off like a masterpiece theater on this kind of thing sit down well when you said that i my brain jumped right to the what is it 1957 was it um the original um animated sleeping beauty 
right? The uh, Disney movie? Yeah. Because yeah. it opens with you have literally the book, Sleeping Beauty, and then it opens, <laughs> and then you have like the little pictures in the page, and he narrates the whole thing before it zooms into the page, right? For the procession. <laughs> yeah. Right. singing hail to the the princess so oh like, nice that's how you do it right just have yeah. the book and start to have i mean i don't know maybe put subtitles for the ancient greek hey that was creating a job for, for a classics <laughs> like go. major or yeah. something you could create a job as a historical consultant on a thing and be like i need oh, you to man. translate this so i can put my subtitles and have them be correct and then i want you to recite this and then we're going to put it in the first <laughs> minutes i would love to hear someone talk about like being a consultant a classes consultant on something <laughs> that would be great yeah i I don't know. You know, that's that's like an avenue that I'm always pushing people toward. If when when people are like, I don't want to be in academia, I want to get my PhD or I want to at least get a master's, but I don't want to be in academia. But what can I do then with this classics degree that I'm not going into the field with? And so that's one field that, you know, I try to spotlight a lot and say, hey, um, Hollywood could use our help because I think people are tired of seeing terribly inaccurate things that just get on everyone's nerve mm -hmm. um you know it's like every time i watch a movie about ancient egypt mm. why are the all why is ancient egypt in ruins like <laughs> ancient egypt is not always in ruins okay like uh it just they probably kept their buildings up you know like right they like probably did a good job keeping everything in place everything's just like buried in sand and it bothers okay. me you know it's kind of like they want to show this lost civilization because that's the power of ancient egypt but i'm like okay but if you're making something that's supposed to be in that era it wouldn't have been lost that's just their life so mm -hmm. please take away the the buried buildings put the paint job back you know mm -hmm. just like do right. a bunch of things that need to be done to make it actually look like present day uh, it's but you know i i've been lucky enough that i my alma mater university of missouri i got lucky because one i find it funny because more than anything i should be i should be with the hot takes defending brad pitt because he is oh yeah missouri yeah oh so, yeah you go to mizzou as well he I went he to mizzou. mizzou all right okay. yeah he's from he's from springfield missouri and then yeah went to mizzou it's it's like the wildest thing my connection with brad pitt like i don't know the man for sure not but when I was a freshman, a girl in my dorm was, she, she said that her aunt went to school at the same time Brad Pitt was there and that she blew him off when he asked her on a date because she said that it was going to be a pity date and then felt bad and then blew off Brad Pitt. And so then all of us were like, well, what are you doing with your life? Your aunt could have married Brad Pitt. <laughs> like she should have just gone on that date. And of course, she was like so chast. She's like, I know. I. She was like, you know, I never let her live that down. Um, yeah, rightfully so. Oh, so what, a, what a missed opportunity! Goodness gracious. Right. So I'm like, oh, gosh. So I don't know. I feel like, you know, going to Mizzou. I feel like I should be the one who's like very protective of Brad Pitt and his work. But uh, apparently that's just not a thing. Uh, like everyone there is like very feel free to shit on all of his work because it was just. <laughs> what's but... that What's that saying? Uh, a, a, a prophet is least welcome in his hometown or whatever that is. Some biblical <laughs> yeah, thing like that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, where you're supposed to be loved most is actually LOL, oh, where everyone's like, GTFO, please, right now. Right. Um, but you got to think like they're the only people who really have the right to do that. 
You know what I mean? Like, it's only like, the, yeah, yeah. Everyone else, this, this isn't your guy. I would like, it's kind of like you would defend your team against anyone else. But like, if something on your team is going wrong, like you're just going to like, you know, never let them forget about it. Yeah. So, you know, there, so there's the Brad Pitt connection. And then actually there's a, a professor. Um, he's in the history department, but he was the historical consultant on the Spartacus Stars Ooh, series. Cool. Um, and then I think that he also has done some consulting work for Netflix's like Roman Empire series or something. He's one of the oh, talking okay. heads on it. Oh, right on. So, okay. sure. yeah. So I'm like, he's one of the rare people within classics who has had that interaction with Hollywood. Um, it's so, y- you know, if I could talk to someone, I definitely want to talk to him about. So is this like an actual thing? Is Hollywood looking for classics majors? Because I, mean... I have a bunch of people who would probably <laughs> love to do that. So, you know, how do we talk to Hollywood and say, please employ some historians? Sure. We're we're dying to work with you. Please, yeah. we would love to work with you to improve the stuff you're doing. Um, you know, and that's obviously it's a, it's a lot easier when you're trying to help out someone who's going to bring something to screen than you know say an, an author right? right um you know i think rick riordan did a great job with the percy jackson books but do i think that there would have been space or room or the need for him to consult an actual classicist no probably not <laughs> unfortunately i mean he did a great job right. anyway so yeah, i don't yeah. really have any complaints but at the same time I'm, i sometimes i'm like i wonder what those books would have looked like if he had consulted a classics major or if he were a classics major himself but yeah so you know obviously we are looking for different career paths that classicists can take whether that's the film and video game industry whether that's going on and continuing and going into academia but also there's so many other professions that you can go into that we haven't even covered I mean you can I like to say you can pretty much do anything in life and still benefit from a classics background. But I personally went the politics route. I swear I'm like a walking cliche, right? Uh, yet an, oh, yet another classics major goes into politics, big whoop. You know, I, I'm not about to become like the next Boris Johnson or anything, or I'm not even gonna be the next Tony Fauci because LOL, not in <laughs> medicine. So I can't pair classics in medicine, but I do know that programs across the country are just, they're losing funding at alarming rates because people don't seem to care or think that we're important. What would you say to people who just say, well, it's unimportant because, you know, hey, it's cool if you have this skill where you can read and translate ancient poetry, but like that doesn't help society or that doesn't help me in any tangible applicable way you know so how do you stand up for yourself and and for the field as a whole what do you say well you know this is like a question that you kind of get whenever you describe what you whenever like I've had I describe sort of what I do to like a friend of the family or like you know someone that's in your like social group or a family group but aren't like directly in your world especially like academic worlds it's like it's like why do you do that um and i mean like on a society level i mean if you're in academia then you're there to teach students and mentor the next generation of scholars that's kind of what you're supposed to do. i mean you're supposed to create knowledge 
And then the business world, the practical world is supposed to apply that knowledge in some way. So like, how does classics fit into like the production of knowledge? Like who's going to be really interested in, you know, sort of some, some like fine details of metrical position and great examiner poetry and how that kind of revolutionizes the way we read Homer. Um, I mean, there's issues of like the concepts and then the techniques about students just like learning how to use their minds better and refining their minds and then going off to doing other things with those minds besides that very, very particular thing to teach them. I mean, it's kind of like classics exist because people want it to still. And if it, they ever stop wanting to, then it just shouldn't, it just won't exist probably as much, at least uh, in most places. And that's not a, necessarily a bad thing, I think. It's like, it needs to serve a purpose. And that purpose often is kind of like, oh, I was interested in Latin in high school and never had a chance to take it, take it or I wanted to like, coming at this, like, you know, through the side door, the various side doors, like we talked about, or like, I just want to, I'm kind of enamored with the ancient world for some reason, sort of like, sort of like unassuming interest about these things. And that seems to be like the entry road that gets students into not like a well-oiled machine of training your mind to think in a precise way about words or about arguments or about whatever the things that you get better at doing in actually actually doing in classics um, that could be transferable skills. But yeah, like to defend what we do and is it's more of like you sort of end up having to defend anything that's not just practical education, um, vocation-based education. You know, so like the same arguments that we make for classics are kind of the same arguments we make for an English major or like, I mean, like whatever other language studies majors, unless you're like, oh yeah, but I'm learning this. I'm going to go work there and do business in Germany or something like that, which is an easy answer. Um, uh, but if you're not, not necessarily right, if you're studying like medieval German, you know, like the same answers you give to defend doing that is the kind of same. So we have a lot of like allies in defending our existence um, if we need to do that. Um, I think classics is facing a lot more important arguments that I think now the outside world are seeing like why should classics exist when it has historically been used as like the educational wing of empire and all of the colonial racist history of that. Like this is actually the conversation, these are the conversations we should be having and coming to terms with in order to be like, and should we exist or not, which is a live question. Not because we're not teaching how someone how to whatever like analyze the chemical compounds of xyz thing um like this almost that's almost kind of like apples to oranges like really what what it comes down to is like what's the history of our discipline how are we going to come to terms with that and then like how can we train 18 to 23 year olds how to think better <laughs> i mean this kind of like like many other disciplines so yeah, yeah, I don't, I, I, yeah, like, when it comes to saving the world, though, I don't know if classics can save the world. I think reading carefully with people and caring about, like, distributing responsibility and authority among a lot of people sitting around and talking about a book, like, in a kind of, like, non-hierarchical ways, like, in a seminar where there's, like, a sort of voluntary, like, leaders who sort of rotate through things, like, that kind of feels like a good sort of thing for a society as a structure, like, like, as kind of, like, a mini structure of his own self, like, the seminar kind of model, um, not necessarily with, like, a professor every single day sort of leading the way, but, like, yeah, changing responsibilities, um, like, that, I think, is a, a good thing for ways to create knowledge, engage with knowledge creation, 
to learn new things, to experience beauty and pleasure and like the joys of reading and talking about things with people, which is a very real and a very great thing. Also very um, fortunate thing if you're able to do it and not have to do other things for, for work. Um, but yeah, when it comes to saving the world, like I often wonder like, why are we all not like, like trying to like do climate change startups right now like I honestly have like why like like yeah like why why like so if it comes down to like that it's a, it's a harder it's a harder thing to grapple with you really have to think about what is it that I'm doing with these other people and is that itself somehow making the world a better place as opposed to like applying my direct knowledge and knowledge creation in efforts to you know capture methane or whatever the case may be yeah, I think that those are all very fair points. For sure, we need to kind of reflect on the discussions we are having and seeing how we bring those about in a very productive way. So where do you stand on the debate of do, do classics need a name change or a rebrand? Like, should we even be calling it classics anymore? Because I, you know, this is something I think I've seen people go back and forth on, especially through classics Twitter all the time. Um but, you know, it's really contentious because a lot of people are really eager to step up and say, no, we're going to we're going to step up and defend our, our discipline. And we it should still be called classics. And other people are like, but that's that's so disgusting, because when people ask, you know, what are, what is your major? And you just say classics. People are like, OK, is that music or art? Like, what the hell is that? And I'm like, well, if no one understands what it is, unless you have to, like, walk them through what it is, that's doing a terrible job. So, of course, people aren't going to understand, like, what we do or why what we do matters if they have no idea what we're talking about you know so it's kind of like so should we change it to be more descriptive and more indicative of what we do so like should we call ourselves like ancient mediterranean studies or ancient mediterranean civilizations i mean if it's what you do i think we should i mean it shouldn't be just you know lip service to anything to change one's names but when it comes down to it I mean, the way I've looked at this is like recently, at least, is um, there's been some, you know, like the history of the National Conference was the American Philological Association, at least from the literature side of things. There's, um, and it there was a vote to change it to Society for Classical Studies, and it was not a quite an even split, but maybe 60, 40, 50, almost almost an even split. I think you get by changing the name, we got away from the very niche sounding philology, right? Which also did not describe a whole lot of what people were doing in the association. And that was a big concern. The word philology was not a big enough umbrella to describe what we were doing. So classical studies. And, and, and that uh, now we are seeing even more brought along a lot of its own problems. And so some of the latest work I've seen on this, you know, like the etymology of the word classic, classical classics going back to the latin what was it originally used and i don't have the citations for you this but um uh but like uh it seems that the earliest usage of this word was a differentiation between like the values practices status of like senatorial elites versus the plebeian masses so like classicus or whatever was like used to signal the good, not just like good versus bad or like virtuous versus under, but like a very particular class of people and what they liked versus a, a very particular other class of people and what they liked. Um, 
And so like when we use the word now, like I, when I became a classics major, I was just like, oh, this is just sort of like, you know, the Greek and Roman stuff that, that the basis of all the you know, English language stuff, like and all these sort of all this culture and history and stuff, but kind of like naively, but now it's sort of like, yeah, th this is implying in the name itself, a hierarchical structure that we might, that, that like we need to deal with. So this could, I, you know, the stuff, going around about changing the name i i would like so my master's program has changed its name to ancient mediterranean studies and it makes sense because they do a variety of like ancient mediterranean things in that department like people studying like the east mediterranean the south mediterranean besides just like greece and rome or roman greece and things like that um so if it's something that your department actually does like if you have people there that are going to do that if you have people there that are going to really care about egypt in it uh, on its own um terms or you know israel or wherever you know like then then it's very appropriate to change the name i think so um because we imply a lot by keeping the classics name and as far back as we can go it's a it's a claim of importance and we what we mean by classics is usually Greece and Rome. And by saying Greece and Rome is more important than, than the vague other things, we're, we're, we're just grabbing the baggage from some um, uh, unsavory past and just carrying it along. Yeah, yeah, quite weighty topics. I, my, uh, my department down at Mizzou actually changed its name to ancient Mediterranean studies the oh, wow. last year I was in school. And I remember thinking, oh, like my initial thought was, okay, this is fine, but what's going to be on my diploma? Like, I don't know why I worried about something as trivial as like what's written on a piece of paper, but I was kind of like, well, it will say something about me or what I do. And they told me that because I had been at the school and this was my last year, I'd be grandfathered into having classical studies remain on my diploma. So we would be the last year that would actually have classical studies on it. Uh -huh. And, you know, I, I, at the time I was just like, okay, cool, whatever. So, you know, I, it's kind of nice because of that implication you were just talking about where if I just say, oh yes, my degree is in classical studies, you know, it, it makes me sound sort of elite and it makes me sound, I don't even know to someone who, you know, doesn't really care about what that means. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's, I, I realize now though, it's something that like I can look back on that it may make me feel really good to be like, oh yes, I'm a classical studies major. But at the end of the day, no one knows what that is. It's not helpful to describing what I studied or the range of classes that I took because I did take more than just Greece and Rome, but oh well. And yeah, it's it's really interesting because it doesn't really lend, you know, it doesn't really affect me. So I suppose it's, you know, I could say it's just a piece of paper, right? Like it doesn't matter, but I don't know. It's just, it's small things like that, that sometimes I think about um but it's definitely worth a lot more discussion and i'm very excited to see kind of where the community as a whole decides to take this in the future because you know this kind of determines the future of how are we going to look at ourselves how are we going to present ourselves in a way that's not inherently like i don't know just the word classics exudes elitism i don't know um <laughs> yeah like that like right that's the answer plain and simple it's just it makes you sound really kind of elitist and i don't like that because that doesn't help us with the oh well then they're just the quote-unquote shady elites living in their ivory tower and i'm like well that's the last thing we are believe me we don't have the money for ivory towers <laughs> but by our name you would never know that <laughs> so 
you know, hey, would I love the corner office with the wood panels and the, you know, I don't know, rooms filled with gold things? Yeah, sure. Too poor. <laughs> Everyone in this field is too poor for that. Um, but at the end of each podcast, I have every guest read Shelley's version of Ozymandias. Oh, yeah. And um, after reading or reciting, hey, poetry is your thing. I'm not going to assume that you may not have this memorized. I don't know. But uh, after you after you read or recite it, um, if you could just like give me your thoughts on it, like your initial hot takes of like, what is the meaning of this poem? Why is it so powerful today, the day it was written? Like, what is it about this poem that just really hits us in the gut with it? Ozymandias by Percy B. Shelley. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing else remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. It's just a great frame for this poem, the traveler encountering this antiquity in its place in this desert sands, um, encountering it as a ruin uh, in the very romantic 18th, 19th century mode. This is you're almost like discovering this ancient culture for yourself for the first time, which kind of is what it feels like to be a classics major <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> Uh, and then you have this like direct narration of it, of the experience, um, a description of the object, um, and just describing the legs as vast. <laughs> you think it does do double duty as describing the legs and the size. Um, uh, and, but also the landscape, because what is vast, but actually a landscape around it. So you, you, it, it does really sort of give you the atmosphere of the setting while describing the thing. Good use of an adjective there. Well done. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, it's just the stone and stand that sort of anadiplosis over those two lines where you have that repetition of the initial sound uh, of the same word, but initial sound, this, the stone stand in the desert and then sand at the end of the line. So sand, sand you have this like book ended assonance there and alliteration um, in some ways. Uh, you've, and this kind of like kind of resolves a little bit into in the next line near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies yet lies is kind of like a feeling of in like an in stop kind of feeling but it's not the last word in the line you get a relative clause that's that starts after it and like um the use of relative clauses in this poem you could just go on and on about how good the who's frown which yet survive like um uh, and then like the whole like um, 
like the use like that center line of this um like uh this this sonnet because it's a sonnet form the eight and six um like right there the hand that mocked them the heart that fed the last line of that octet before you get to the sex like the, the syntact like syntactic like gymnastics you have to do to be like all right where does that fall in the subject the object and the verb like you're doing all of the you have to do all those things you get really good at doing parsing greek and latin sentences within an inch of their life so you can be like no this is the subject this is the verb this is an adjectival relative clause describing that this is an adverbial relative you know like so you just like lay out all those things and you get rewarded for all those things in this poem in the english language um and then you have the turn um where uh, with the last six lines uh, on a pedestal, these words appear. So you get the inscription, you get the words. It's described, you know, from there. So it's a stand. You get like you get like the pedestal, like the legs, and then the inscription. Um, yeah, it, uh, yeah. You get like the the plinth, and the inscription is just like it's just so fun. To it's almost comic thinking about this the 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 wheels of fate and fortune and the king of kings um alone in the level level sand stretching far away there's that sand going back to that sound repetition at the beginning of that and stretch um uh sand stretch there's something to that sort of like ties it together it's a sound thing entirely it's a formal thing and then it also works on the sense level on the semantic level where it's like this is back to the setting um yeah, there's so much could, that could be said for this. Each one of these lines, uh, like just just getting into it, like close reading and philology, it rewards it every time. Um, just talking about like a yeah, like oh man, the face lying in there. Oh gosh. See, we can tell. We can absolutely tell that you are a poetry expert because every poetry expert I ever ask they just dig right into the poetic elements, and then all they want to gush about is how it's like the most perfectly crafted poem you could possibly find like there is no better creation than this or to look at this form yeah i love it yeah i love it's it like and it's like for such a poem about a crumpled broken form lying in the sand preserved in the sand i should say the dry sand um it's like it is a quintessential sonnet in form, it just nails the sonnet form. And while it's talking about a different medium, uh, artistic medium, a sculpture and statuary that has that has fallen apart with time and yet been preserved, and even the words themselves, um, nothing besides remains. Presumably, the words, the head, the, the legs, and the plinth. Um, you know, also I will say this poem reminds me almost like rhythmically and 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 sound wise of of um, Yeats. Uh, the second coming, uh, like especially with these kinds of breaks, and of course with like this desert, like sculpture-like figure. It's a sphinx in the second coming. Here it's Ozymandias, and you know, I bet if you wanted to do an intertextual reading of these two, there would be something to be said about Yeats and um, Shelley and these two poems together, these two sonnets together. So, so anyway, that was something else there that would be fun to do. At- <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, you know, I was not particular. I don't know. This is great because I always find poetry expert um, 
like that that superlative expression that we have in the poem king of kings that we're the like nerd of nerds right when we want to break down the language to to like you know dissect every inch of, of this perfectly crafted thing that you're like there's nothing so perfect as this um but so i'm gonna i'm gonna broaden it just so i can get to the one question i always look forward to asking guests right at the very end is so the, the statue is, Shelley uh, was inspired to write this poem because of a statue of Ramesses II uh, cool. that was coming to the British Museum from Egypt back in 1818. And just Shelley loving Egypt and everything. And it was like the height of Egyptomania. So everything was about Egypt back then. So, you know, the poem to me is really a, a comment on the ephemeral nature of uh, political power, but also yeah. human hubris. The yeah. You know, he thought he was going to be the greatest king of all time and, and his empire would last a million years forever. And it's it's gone. Like, it's just gone. And we wouldn't even know about him or his empire if it weren't for the artisan who sculpted the thing. So, you know, it says something about, hey, the little guys literally would help you. You cannot do this alone because <laughs> if you are just sitting here like, I am the greatest. Well, sorry, dude, you're not. Um, so if we kind of look at the poem that way, is there a modern Ozymandias that you can point to and say, that's our modern day Ozymandias. The the person who's claiming to be king of kings that is sure to be washed away by like the the ravages of time. It could be a person, it could be a thing. You know, I've had, it's, I, I guess, it, you know, it's framed in the sort of like, what is something right now? It could be a person or a thing that we think is just the greatest that will last forever. But like, if we think about it like 2000 years from now, will it really be here? Or, or will people look back and be like, wow, was that weird or stupid or wrong? Um, I don't know. I've gotten, you know, a wide variety of answers here. People definitely say a certain person, other people. I don't know. I've gotten like the internet. Someone said an abandoned casino in Atlantic City. Gasoline cars. Their, their days are numbered, the writings on the wall, and it will not be long until we're not using gasoline for our vehicle, like, like in private individual vehicles and good riddance. <laughs> not just gas guzzlers, but gasoline. Let's move on. Yeah, let's find some, I don't know, like wind, solar powered cars, right? Yeah. And and we will still like the old models and like the vintage antique ones. I'll be like, this is gorgeous. And like, I can wonder at this sort of like Hulk, like, yeah, like empty Hulk on the side of the road. You're like, man, look at that Ozymandias sitting right there. That controlled the world and changed it for the worst in uh, like climate wise, but for the better for people getting around, you know, like, so like, let's, let's learn and move on and and wonder at the thing in, in the in the junkyard. Yeah, that's a great answer. That's something I definitely have not heard before. I love getting everyone's new takes because I'm hearing so many different ideas uh, about you know what what are what's going to last and what isn't. Uh, but yeah, so I wanted to thank you one more time for joining me this morning. It's it's been so fun to just talk and dissect poetry. <laughs> yeah, same here. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, Lexi. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart 
them fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 